Okay, everybody, if you want to get a seat, we're going to get started. Sing with me. The first Noel, the angels did say, was a certain Christmas music is up there like one or two in your favorite parts of this time of the year. Yeah, okay. How many of you just make fun of Christmas music the whole season long? Raise your hands high. Be proud. There's always a few. I see you. I see you. Some of you are very bold about this. Um, it, it's, um, it, it's strange when the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Christmas. They do it largely through song. I mean, the characters in the story in those first few chapters, every now and then they just, they just break into songs like a 
Broadway musical or something. I mean, there's, there's Mary's song, the Magnificat, which we read earlier, Zachariah's song, there's the angel's song to the shepherds, there's Simeon's song at the temple. There's four songs in the first two chapters. And it, it kind of begs the question, why so much music? Why is Luke doing this? Why not just, you know, give a straightforward journalistic account? You know, just a history of the birth of, of Christ. And I like to think that, that Luke somehow knew what had happened was so um, miraculous and so unexpected and amazing that the only way to even scratch the surface of it was to engage art in some way. And so he chose these songs, which was a good move because like songs, music can make you feel things, right? Here's a, there's this one chord I love. Do you feel that chord? I play it all the time because it's kind of sad and I'm always depressed, so it's like, this works for me. Um, but this is what he's doing. He's using music because it engages the heart. It kind of bypasses the mind and gets the imagination going because he's trying to get us to catch a glimpse of this mystery, right? This kind of not unknowable, but endlessly knowable thing. And you're going to need your imagination for that. So it, if, if Luke is trying to get us to change the, or to chase the, the mystery, then, then a song is, is, a, is a good move. It's, it's not a bad move. In fact, one of the most um, essential or foundational ideas to music theory is this idea that on a foundational level, what a good song always does is take us on a journey, kind of journey. In, in its simplest form, um, the journey is signified by the pattern home, away, home. That's, that's kind of the basis of any good song that you love. And so the first thing that a song does is it shows you where home is, right? And you can catch it quickly. So see if you know this home. And sing along if you do. Hey, June. I knew you guys would know it. Song and make it better. Just remember to letter it to your heart. And then you start to make it better. And in just a few moments, or just a few notes of the song, a line or two, they teach you where home is. And if you know the song, pretty soon you can you can sing along with it. Hey, June, don't be afraid. You were made to go out and get her. The minute you let her under your skin, and then you'll begin to make it better. And then what a good song does is at some point will take you from home to away. They'll introduce just a little bit of tension into the song. The Beatles do this with a single note. That note right there tells you, okay, we're no longer home. That doesn't work for home. You taught me home and that's not it. And, and, then, and then the Beatles, because they're brilliant, they kind of invert the key. It's just such a great muse. And so anytime you feel the pain, Upon your shoulders, 
and they do it again. They're signaling again, it's not home yet, you're still away. And by the way, once the away song or away part of the song takes, um, takes root in us, it's messing with us. It's trying to create, kind of unconsciously, a desire for home. Like you'll want it to resolve. Um, where are you? For, well, you know that it's a fool who plays it cool by making his world a little colder. And at this point, all you want is to go home, right? In fact, some of you who, are, who love music are really sensitive people. It's, it's killing you right now. You're like, resolve, resolve the chord already. You left me hanging. Do you feel it? Should we just not do it? We... Nah, let's do it. Hey, Jude, don't let me down. You have found And this song is, it is so great at this simple home away home pattern that the last time they bring it home, the Beatles, they bring it home for eight minutes. The outro to Hey Jude is eight minutes long and nobody cares because it feels so good to be home. You just want to hang out there for a while. So sing it if you know it. on the lighters to emerge. We won't do the entire eight minutes. There was a lighter. I saw a lighter waving above. In the away section, there's no desire for home. And that one of the reasons that um, songs that do home away home well hit us so deeply, so powerfully, is that it rings true with our experience. Even just, not the words even, sometimes it's words, sometimes it's just the music. We're like, that's life, that's the way that life is. It rings true with our, our experience. Um, really, really quickly, I'm gonna just try this. Turn to your neighbor, somebody around you and tell them your favorite sad song. Like just the one for you that does it for you. It's the one you love the most. Did you do one? Man, some of you have a lot of sad songs. I'm, hopefully, my wife just said she did not have one. So we're going to have to talk because I was in this band called Satellite Soul. I wrote sad song after sad song. 
But it's this home away home thing. And you know, home can mean a lot of different things in our lives and it changes over time. There's like a home you grew up in. At some point you left, you went to, to college or to work or school and everything in the new place felt strange at first, right? And then after a while it feels, feels like home. Or maybe you get married and all of a sudden you're away again, but then you kind of grow together and you form a new sense of home. And then you have a baby, you start to worry about a bunch of new stuff and they take up all your money and you never sleep. It's definitely an OA season in that first few months. But then this new kind of home emerges that's like incredible. And then the kids leave home. And even home doesn't feel like home for a while. But then you adjust and it, and it does. And really everything that is meaningful in life follows this pattern of home, away, home. Even, even the really good stuff have has these away seasons, times of tension and pain and loss and suffering that do what a good song does. They create in us a desire for home. And Christians have always believed that our our soul kind of um, somehow finds its home in God, but much of life in the human experience involves this away thing, this sense that we are away from God from ourselves even, in each other, in the world. And so this, this home away home pattern runs throughout our lives, and it's the, the pattern music often takes, including the song that we're looking at today, one of the most beautiful songs in history, Mary's Magnificat. And Mary's story begins at home, right, in a well-established place. She's a good Jewish girl in a good Jewish family. She's found a good Jewish husband, this guy named Joseph, who is said to be a righteous man. That means he kept Torah. It was a good match. This would be a good home for Mary. Her plan would have just been to be married, run a household, have a family, live a quiet, hopefully peaceful life. And then this angel shows up, right, Gabriel, and says this, do not be afraid. That's always a bad sign. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary says, of course, what any of us would would say, which is, I don't know how things work with angels, but we humans sort of have a protocol to this sort of thing. And I've never been with a man, so I think that you have some bad information to which he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her, who is said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary said these famous, phenomenal words, here I am the servant of the Lord, may it be unto me according to your word. And in an instant, she's thrust into the away section of her life. You know, Jewish engagement, we talked about this before, to be betrothed, it was, it's, it's in essence the same as marriage in every single way except for sex and cohabitation. Betrothal isn't like an Instagram thing in the ancient world. They, they were as good as legally married, just still living with their Two households getting ready to, to create, making preparations for this new 
household. So when this angel shows up telling Mary, you're going to bear a child, the implications are dire for her. Just imagine it. A young Jewish girl, 15, 16 years old, we don't really know how old, living with her parents, though, and a bunch of relatives. If she consents to this, life as she knew it was over. I mean, this is going to be, first and foremost, a scandal. And, and her only story is, well, there was this angel, and he said that the, it's from God. I mean, nobody's going to buy this. Like, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. Plus, in her day, it was kind of a common tale with arranged marriages. A, a woman would be betrothed to a man but be in love with another and then turn up pregnant. It was so common they had a whole procedure for it in Jewish law. If Mary didn't claim to be like forcibly violated and Joseph didn't claim the child, she could be tried for adultery. And at some point, the scandal broke, and we're told Joseph um, was going to divorce her quietly. He was just going to break it off, trying not to get her in too much trouble. But even then, she would be shamed and probably ostracized by many. And her baby would be called a mamzer. It means bastard. Excluded from temple and worship. It was just a lot to ask this young girl. Why did she say yes? Some people say it's, she said yes because it, this angel showed up, and an angel shows up, it's kind of hard to say, nah. But like literally in that same chapter, Zach, Zachariah did. He, the same angel came to him. He didn't believe it. He ends up mute for nine months, right? How did Mary say yes, given all that it meant for her? Um, Scott McKnight is a New Testament scholar and author. He wrote this book called The Real Mary um, about 15 or so years ago. And he's convinced Mary said yes because she knew God. She knew from the pages of her people's history that the God of Israel was a merciful God who would look after her. She knew the stories about other women who were threatened by Jewish history, in Jewish history, who were protected by God. A few years ago, I emailed Scott and asked him, it's been a long time since you wrote this, have you noticed anything new? And he said two things. One, um, anti-Catholicism continues to block interest in Mary among Protestants. He said, it's really a shame. And then he said this, Mary and Joseph began to suffer for Jesus before he was even born. That in itself is worth knowing and contemplating. It's interesting. Suffering in a way season has always been part of the story of Christ, even before he was born. It always reminds me of that great Walter Brueggemann line. He said, um, most, most of us are willing to die for Jesus. We just don't want to be inconvenienced, which hits me kind of hard. You know? Mary would be way more than just inconvenienced by this. Maybe that's why Mary took off and went to see her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant at the time with John the Baptist. Remember the story, the moment she arrived, um, the baby leaps within Elizabeth's room and she, or womb and she kind of leaps into her own little song of her own. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Words we still use. And then comes the most famous song perhaps in all of history. Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. 
His mercy is on those who fear him from generation and generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Not exactly, hush little baby, don't say a word, you know. He's scattering the proud. He's bringing down the powerful from their thrones. Clearly aimed at Herod the Great, who, by the way, would order her child's death within the year. Mary's song names Jesus as a direct threat to the powerful. Years, hundreds, centuries later, um, the British Empire would outlaw the singing of the Magnificat in churches in India because it was so revolutionary. Similar things happen in Guatemala and Argentina as well. This is not a sentimental song. This is subversive and incendiary. How does a meek little Jewish girl composed such a radical song as this. And I think McKnight nails it, that the, most of the words of Mary's song are quilted together from all different parts of the scripture. Like Psalm 25, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit has found gladness in God my Savior. That's, she adapts that line. Ma- Mary's education, of course, would have been mostly memorizing the Psalms. All of it was reading in in the Torah and in the Jewish texts. And so there are dozens of allusions to Jewish scripture in this short song. She's singing about the God she's come to know through Hebrew scripture. And she was longing for the redemption of Israel and believed that God was moving this way, using her life, and that God would look out for her. And so she makes this theological leap, too. If God raised up a faithful leader then the other leaders, Herod, would have to fall. And of course, Herod, she knew, would make everybody miserable on the way down. And so when she said this, may it be unto me according to your word, it's, just, it's more, way more powerful than just like humble obedience. It was, a, it was a powerful act of prophecy. If you think about Hebrew prophets, in their, in their mind, what a prophet was is somebody whose life has become so, they hear from God, but their life is so joined to the word of God that they are able to internalize it and then bring that word to the people. That's what it means to be a prophet. Mary is overshadowed, is a biblical word, by the, by the word of God. And, and then scripture says that she pondered that word in her heart. The word in Greek is symbolo. It means to wrestle or struggle or contend with. It's a technical word almost always used for the prophets. And this is exactly what Mary does, right? She, she was joined physically to the word of God. And then she symbolos. She ponders it. And then she brings forth that word to her people, physically in the form of a child that first in this song. I mean, we usually think of like John the Baptist is the, the, the main one, but 
the first and most consequential prophet of the New Testament is the prophet Mary. Her life isn't just like a cute story, sentimental. She teaches us that all of us are asked to join our own lives to God's life, to bear God's image, to bear witness to Christ. And if we do, it's not just home, 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 home. All of Christianity involves an away section, this willingness to bear suffering in a way that glorifies Christ. And when she faced her away season, Mary's answer was, may it be unto me according to your word, which is, I think, meant to make us ponder what would our answer be. I sometimes ask people, if you could meet one biblical character besides Jesus, who would it be? But it's a trick question because there's only one right answer. It's Mary. You want to meet Mary. She's the one. And if we could host her here this morning to come and tell our story, like if an author was on a book tour and they just came to kind of speak to the, to the church, I always, if this could happen, I would cast her as Gloria Stewart, the grandma from the Titanic. That's my Mary in my mind. <laughs> kind of sassy, a little bit cheeky, you know, but courageous and kind. Um, that, that's, that, that would be, for me, um, about that's the that's the celebrity that you that you really want. That's the one you actually pay for and, and bring them in. If if Mary were here, she would curl our toes with the tales that she could tell of suffering and intrigue, of politics and money, of um, religious power brokering and corruption, and then of her son, maybe like a mischievous little boy, an avid learner, clearly a good friend maybe, and then suddenly a miracle worker, a peacemaker, a healer, and then a powerful teacher and prophet who opened his own people's eyes to the kingdom and the whole world. And she could tell us what she saw from the ground, you know, at the foot of the cross. She could tell us what she saw at the mouth of the tomb. And I picture her just like filling in the little details and laughing and telling stories and then probably wrapping up her message to everyone. She would ask us all a question, the same question that that she had to face. I'm just a little Jewish girl, nothing special at all about me, she would say, but look what happened. And all I did was say, yes, my life is yours, oh God, let it be unto me according to your word. And look what was born into the world through me. And then I think she'd say something like, so the question I leave you with is this, what wants to be born into the world through you? That's Mary's question that she puts to all of us. Over the past decade or so, there's been one song about Mary that I've just fallen in love with. It's called O Magnum Mysterium. And um, it's just a, it's a beautiful song. I want to play it for you. And talk about it a little bit. I know if any of the anybody here this week for the women's prayer event, okay, so you're going to recognize this song. It's just such a beautiful song. Is it going? There we go. They're singing in Latin. The words are, O Magnum Mysterium, O Great Mystery.
And then they sing, Et admirabile sacramentum. Et admirabile is, turn down just a bit. Admirabile means wonderful. Sacramentum means sacrament. So it's, oh, great mystery and wonderful sacrament. Sacramentum. It goes on, some of the words are ut animalia fiderent, that, that the animals should bear witness. Dominum natum, to the Lord, natum is newborn. Jacentum in prosepio, lying in a manger. So how could this happen? It's saying that the animals, lowly animals, would bear witness to this miracle of all miracles, right? And that's sort of the home section of the piece. It's this lush and beautiful, oh, magnum mysterium, oh, great mystery and wonderful sacrament. You know, sacrament is when physical things in the world, normal things, take on this big spiritual significance. That's a sacrament. It's one of my favorite doctrines of the church is the sacramentality of all of life, that anything can become a sacrament, can become sacred, every life. It's part of why we're always blessing things at Redemption Church. We're just trying to name the sacredness that we see in everything. And this is it. This is kind of the peaceful home. This is the home section of the song. That even the animals could bear witness to the newborn king. Okay, so that's home for the song, O Magnum Mysterian. And that's kind of the, the, the world that God has designed for us. And in, in, in the second phrase, it's going to take us away a little bit. Um, it, the words are, Beata Virgo, Blessed Virgin, Cuyus Viscera, was found, Viscera's guts, like, was found in her, in her guts, even maybe in her womb. Murient portare, murient is worthy, portare is, portare is port, carry was worthy to carry Dominum Christum, the Lord Christ. Um, the composer is this guy, Morton Lordson. He's a like contemporary guy. He's still living today. He did an interview one time. He, he talked about the piece. He said the most challenging part was how do you portray Mary because of the tension of it all? This virgin, a good Jewish girl who's asked to be a scandal, who's asked to, to get in trouble to pr- try to bring forth the word. He says, it's very hard, hard to decide how to, how to portray the joy and the suffering in it. So he said, after exploring several paths, I decided to depict this with a single note on the word Virgo, virgin. The altos sing a dissonant G sharp. It's the only tone in the entire work that's foreign to the key of D. And he said, it's the most important note in the entire piece. Let's, let's listen to it. It'll come up. So they're saying, Beata Virgo. Beautiful. You'll hear the note just in a second. You hear it? It just kind of hurts a little bit, right? That's the away note. 
how can a virgin carry a child, right? That she would have the guts, right? That she would be worthy to bear Dominum Christum, the Lord Christ. Listen again for that away note. You can kind of feel it, can't you? It's away. It's only no, not in the scale. And it's telling you what it costs Mary, right? And that right after they sing that, then they just cut, lo- cut loose. Turn it back up. They just cut loose with O Magnum, O Great Mystery. Oh, it hurts. And they just keep going even higher now. Oh, great mystery. back home again, only this time it's a little, it's kind of, home's a little different because you have gone through that, that tension. It's more, more beautiful, but also kind of sad. You can bring it down now, thanks. And in, in essence, part of what Lordson's trying to, trying to get at is that Mary is um, teaching us what it means to be a Christian. If you think about it, just in a very strict theological sense, Mary is the first Christian. Her life, she was the first to accept Christ, in a sense, like to host the very life of God, um, her body becoming a, a sacrament. And, and it's, it's meant to teach us this is the move that we're all supposed to make, to receive Christ, to allow Christ to be born again into the world and through our lives, just like Mary. This is what it means to be a Christian. And Mary teaches us that it, it doesn't fix everything. It complicates things. It doesn't come without an away section. God will ask us to do difficult things. Things like lay down our lives for one another, for our neighbors. To live in fidelity to really broken people. Live in fidelity to a broken church. To love our enemies, for heaven's sakes. To be peacemakers in a world of violence. And this, is, this is our away section. And there's only one way home through the away section. And Mary teaches us that too. It's this willingness to say, may it be unto me according to your word. It's hard to say. But, but when we say it, our lives become a sacrament. Something sacred and holy, through which God can be born again into the world. It's amazing. And all kinds of goodness and justice and, and peace and love can be birthed into the world through us. It's funny, Mary, Mary's kind of um, like a Rorschach inkblot test, you know? You kind of see in her a little bit whatever you want to see. But if the Catholics have made too much of Mary, the rest of us surely have made too little, you know? She was not a wispy wallflower. She was courageous and rugged and so strong and tough. And she left an indelible mark on the church long after the Christmas story was over. And she teaches us still that our lives hold the same potential as her life did. 
the potential to give God hands and feet in the world. And so I kind of want to leave us with the question Mary puts to us for our last little week of this Advent season. It's the question, what wants to be born into the world through you? And what is the great mystery, the wonderful sacrament of your life? And then to keep in mind, the only way to find out is, is to learn how to say, may it be unto me according to your word. So we'll just hold these questions in our heart as we move throughout the next week toward Christmas Eve. As we do, I want in our closing time here, I want us to encounter this song, O Magnum Mysterium, together. Again, put together just like a little video of a choir singing it, and then also... Um, Scenes from a movie where they dramatized the Annunciation. So you'll see scenes of the moment where Mary was confronted by the angel and their little dialogue there. So we're just going to kind of silently just watch and listen to this and and pray our way toward um, Advent together. So, So let's watch.
Will you stand with me? And we're going to receive communion. The way that we do communion is we just, the ushers release us row by row and we come forward and receive um, a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. And as we receive it, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can answer, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable. We do this because on the night when Christ was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and a cup and shared it in this kind of symbolic common meal with his disciples. And then he said, every time you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup. In a sense, take my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made of. It's the move Mary makes. I mean, coming to receive communion is like saying, may it be unto me according to your word. And so this is why we do this every week. Um, And it's also why we just place no limits. Anybody's welcome at the table, anybody who calls on the name of Christ. So let's pray a blessing. Lord, we do ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and and send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?